As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show Weekend Review. We only had half a slate of Premier League games, but Arsenal and Liverpool kept up their title claims. Arsenal might have ended Roy Hodgson's career, while Liverpool put themselves five points clear. It didn't go so well at home for Bayern, who stumbled at home, but not for want of trying. It'll be pretty hard for Bavarian fans to bear when they find out about Harry Kane's curse for silverware. Real Madrid scraped a win late on, but Almeria felt the refereeing was a con, and Juventus went to the top of Serie A's steeple, while Inter played in the Super Cup in front of not too many people. And of course, a game we really need to mention, a USMNT loss that may or may not have caught your attention. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who almost delayed this recording because he saw a heron out of his window. Taylor Rockwell, hello. A heron and a deer, and maybe they were fighting. And I don't know what that means, but that is definitely some sort of prophecy that has been fulfilled. Wow, I like I like that. I don't like herons, however, Taylor. As a uh, we owned a pond when I was a young lad in our family, and herons were the enemy Hush. of the pond. <laughs> we owned a pond. Uh, and okay, gross. we dug a hole in our yard and uh-huh. put water in it. Is more specific. The servants did, or you did? Let's let's be honest here. Also, <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and vote now that uh, Roy Hodgson ended Roy Hodgson's career, and I'm going to vote that they did not notice the USA's one 0 loss to Slovenia. If we're answering questions from the introduction. Thank you very much. Asked and answered. Very good. Uh, I mean, Roy Hodgson, poor him out. He's 75. He's got so he's got so much ahead of him, Taylor, in terms of career. It's, it's just. <laughs> Sure. (laughs) He does. He does. He's going to be a great pundit someday. Uh, Talking to great pundits, joining us, Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. (laughs) Hello. Yeah, I look forward to seeing what Roy Hodgson's doing in 25 years or so, sticking with the the Crystal Palace and the Premier League tie-ins. The idea that Chris Richards might have preferred to be playing for the United States against Slovenia because he was atrocious against Mm. Arsenal and as... I don't know, I'm probably not leading the Chris Richards, you know, hype train, but I, I'm in. You I'm are. in the top. I'm in the front half of the train. That's for darn sure. Uh, wow. It was not something that I love to see. 
Let's hope that train doesn't have to take any corners, Joe, because ah. Richard don't handle it that ah. well. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Can, we, oh boy. can we talk about how Joe was absolutely the conductor just shoveling in the coal? And then, I, like, cinematically, I'm not, I'm not I think the conductor. Joe just I'm just in the front half of the slow, train. Exactly. Slowly walked away from the engine and just started backing up and backing well, I, up and eventually being the caboose. I want to be closer to the dining car, Taylor, is, yeah. is the reality. You know, there's no there. point of being at the front. You want to be closer to where the action's at. You know That's the bit in Back to the Future where they drive off the bridge? That is essentially uh, <laughs> what Joe's doing with Chris Richards right now. Just going to casually wow. Wow. Out to the side. No, Chris Richards is still very good at soccer and everything's going to be fine. Right? Into the Hill Valley Ravine. Graham <laughs> Ruthven, hello, how are you? <laughs> I'm good, Ryan Bailey. Have you managed to stay away from Chili's on your, your health kick for another week? Or or um, did you have a weekend of fried foods like Taylor? Taylor, I'm going to need a, an explainer on your Patreon video. And oh. specifically, what kind of fried foods are we talking about? Because this, this is my area of expertise as a Scot. I need details. <laughs> uh, we did... Uh, Chicken wings, uh, chicken okay. tenders for the for the youngster, and also for me. Uh, my wife had a salad because you know health, and then also potato wedges, fried potato wedges, not uh, French fries, and they were all glorious and wonderful. And Joe, barbecue barbecue sauce and buffalo sauce, just to make you really happy. Had me in the first half and lost me in the second half, Taylor. Much like the sauce, Bills. As we all uh, know, is a, ter- is a terrible food. And Taylor, I was going to offer my sympathies to yeah. you uh, and your Buffalo Bills. Apologies. I was cheering for you yesterday. And just couldn't couldn't make it happen for you. I don't want to claim to be fully Buffalo Bills. Like Adam Snavely is fully Buffalo Bills. My brother-in-law, my wife are all from Buffalo Bills people. But we definitely got into it. Our daughter was cheering for it. I was holding the uh, the infant for like the entire fourth quarter and most of the third quarter, and it was not mm. how I wanted that to play out. And as a former kicker, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for kickers. I feel bad for kickers when they miss. You gotta hit that one, man. You gotta hit that one. I know he's been good all season, but that was brutal. So- that was brutal. So you didn't do a Jason Kelsey then while holding yeah. the baby? I was going to no. say, were you build enough off. to remove your shirt and start drinking <laughs> and, uh, you know, hover near Taylor Swift while you were? I loved how they, they showed him before kickoff, and he was just he was wearing a chief shirt. He was, like, casually chatting, just seemed to be, you know, just in the box, just hanging out. And the next time we saw him, he's leaning out the box with no shirt on, <laughs> screaming with, with uh, I think, double fisting. I enjoyed that. It was a good Sorry, performance what? from him. <laughs> what's what's the most famous soccer brothers on the planet right now? Like, what's the most famous pair of soccer brothers on the planet? I I ask because I'm trying to wonder what would happen if one of those brothers showed up to the other brother, maybe in Scotland or something like this, <laughs> and was wearing his brother's apparel and cheering for a team that is now still in route for the championship when his team just lost last week. I just remember what happened when Baralter had like CCV and James Sands and Malik Tillman all around a table and oh, Scotland yeah. lost their collective minds about that and basically <laughs> were calling for all of their heads. I just think that soccer is maybe slightly less friendly to situations like that one. I think I think if it were I hear you. I think if it was like Jason Kelsey played for the Eagles and Travis Kelsey played for the Cowboys, Different it would story. not be as well received. Okay. But since there's Fair. not as much Animosity. I mean, Philly has animosity with everybody. That's just how they work. Uh, God, I love Philly. Uh, but, but I think that is part of it. Joe, to your question about who are the like the most prominent brothers in world soccer right now, all I can think of is people who are maybe slightly past their prime. I'm not sure I have a good answer until Same. Graham says somebody, and then I'm like, oh, right, that was obviously the answer. The Mbappe brothers, potentially? Nope. Ethan Mbappe? <laughs> the Hoyland? Not the I did not even know that Mbappe had a brother. Um, Really? Okay. What about the What about the Hazards? That's probably the answer, right? That's still. I mean, that's still the one. But like, is is Aiden Hazard not retired? He might look like Jason Kelsey at this point. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I think he looked like Jason Kelsey for much of his Real Madrid career, to be honest. Oh, yeah. boy. The loud drops of the De Boers, are they still playing? No? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I have to check. Uh, but the Hoylands is the one that strikes me, having played each other this season as well. Okay. Wonderful. That's fair. Good stuff. 
All right. Talking of good stuff, USMNT action. Why didn't we get there? Uh, USMNT nil, Slovenia won in San Antonio, Texas this weekend in Taylor, the wonderful January, um, what do we call this, camp? What do we call the camp? It's got a name, right? Candy cane. Camp. Great. Well, camp Candy Cane Candy Cane was when it was in December a couple of years ago or last yeah. year, whatever. This is Camp Cupcake as the, the start of the new year. Amazing. Because uh, cupcakes are a thing you associate with January? What's the logic there? Well, Candy Cane was was very clear to the times of December, and I think cupcake has always been sort of a derogatory term that gets yeah. thrown at it. Um, so it's not seasonal. It's more of an adjective rather than a, a noun, uh, or at least in terms of the importance oh, of the Every word. day's a school day. Yeah. Wow. Am I... I might be totally wrong, Joe. I'm sure there have been other friendlies in January. I feel like this is one of those things that started under Klinsman because he was annoyed by how little playing time there was, how short the MLS season was. If you didn't make the playoffs, you're done for like months at a time. And I think January camp maybe starts around that time. Maybe it predates him. It might be Bob Bradley as a way to just, yeah, as Joe said, get MLS players uh, a look with the U.S. team to get them some minutes. And sometimes that means you're getting senior players who are going to contribute significantly in the coming year. Sometimes, as was the case here, it's a combination of uh, youngsters getting their debut, and then it's players who are maybe preparing for the Olympics, and so they're getting some minutes here to see what it's like. Uh, so it's a combination of things, and I think ultimately it means it's not taken that seri- seriously. It's a lighter training camp against a lighter opponent, so I guess cupcakes are served at some point. Uh, okay, Taylor, we've covered Herons, we've covered NFL, we've covered uh, a camp nomenclature. Are we doing mm-hmm. everything to not talk about the actual game at this point? Or- <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I'll bit. do it, darn it. A little bit. Go on, Ed Joe, go on. Okay. So, uh, first of all, January camp dates back to the late 90s, I believe. So, we can't, we can't give Klinsman credit for that one. But in terms oh, of this I'm not actual... inclined to give him credit. Don't worry. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Well, well, then we're agreed on that one, Taylor. Uh, this game in general was pretty much exactly what the scoreline sounds like it was. Zero for the U.S., one for Slovenia being held in San Antonio FC Stadium over in Texas Second Division Stadium there. This was not an inspiring U.S. performance, but January camp games are, are never inspiring. The, the worst part about this game is that not a lot of players showed particularly well, right? There's a lot of of potential and promise in this squad, and it didn't really feel like a lot of that came across for some players. So you had Patrick Schulte in goal, you had Jack Moore, Sean Zawatsky, Miles Robinson, and Dewan Jones across the back line. You had Aiden Morris as that holding number six, and then Josh Atencio and Tim Tillman as the two number eights. And then you had Bernie Camungo on the right side. You had Brian White through the middle and Diego Luna off to the left. And really the only two players that caught my mind that caught my eye, excuse me, in that starting 11, Diego Luna on the left side, constantly drifting inside, trying to get on the ball. I really would like to see him as a lone number 10 in a 4-2-3-1 for club or country, ideally for both. He pulled the strings and, and had some nice through balls in this match. And then Kamungo off to the right side, 22-year-old winger for FC Dallas. He gives up the ball on Slovenia's goal, so he loses it there, which is not a, not a good thing for any player in any moment. But he also, I, I thought, was one of the bright spots in the attack. Really, the wingers were throughout this game Kamungo has that directness. He has the ability to beat you on the dribble that it seems like the U.S.'s depth out wide tends to lack. I don't think he's ready for the first team just yet, but you think about him probably being at the Olympics this summer over in Paris, where he could be in line for a pretty major role there as he continues to develop for Dallas and and with the U23s likely this summer under Marko Mitrovic, he could be someone to watch. Taylor, the other player, that really caught my eye. There was a couple before off the you, bench. Yeah, go before ahead. Before you jump to him, um, I have a question. You said he has the ability to beat you on the dribble. 
this is a genuine non-leading question. Did you see him beat anybody on the dribble? Because yeah. I have that not in my notes. I I do I didn't write it down either. This this game I was watching much more passively. I was also out of town this weekend, so there were, there were a couple of challenges here. But he absolutely Jesus. did beat some folks on the dribble. If people go back through and and watch some of the clips and involvements from him, he was incisive and he did have some success in those one v one kinds of moments. I mean, he had according to FopMob, here we go, two for two and successful dribbles. I don't know how they're calculating that because he definitely did not dribble pie everyone that he tried to in this game, but he did for sure, make some progress down that right side. Taylor, one of the other young players that really stood out to me in this game, you know, Jack McGlynn and John Tolkien, who I thought were both good off the bench. I really like McGlynn's game. I hype him up pretty much any chance that I get. Uh, but the other player that stood out to me was Esmir Baraktarovic. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you you caught much of his involvement. Yes, sir. It seemed to me like every time he was on the ball on that right side, cutting in on the left foot, like he was doing things for the United States. He was the only player in my notes that I remember actually trying to take somebody on and actually mm. trying to create 1v1. Uh, and he ends up getting the shot that is saved or shot that goes just wide, I forget. But either way, it's it's good control. It's a ball over the top. He, he controls it. He takes somebody on. He tries to beat them. He gets the shot away. And that was a, a sort of decision that I felt like was, was supremely lacking in this game. I had... A lot of positive thoughts about uh, Luna. I had some some positive thoughts on Atencio. I thought he was all over the place, especially in the first 15 minutes in a good way. Covered a ton of ground, did a lot of different things uh, in a lot of different moments. But again, I didn't see a lot of individual creativity. I saw a lot of sort of recycling of possession. One and two touch passes that ended up being three and four and five touch passes. And it yep. just kind of slowed everything down. There wasn't a lot of willingness to turn and go at people. I thought Luna was probably the player most inclined to do that. He looked for some wall passes. He tried to create. I thought he was pretty electric. Um, and yeah, so Bayratarovic coming in and trying something did stand out to me for that reason. In a game where people didn't really seem to want to put their necks on the line. Felt like he was willing yeah. to go at people and try to make something happen. Well, and I'll add one more sort of frustration. Agreed on all that. Baraktarovic is a super fun player. He was really good for the U.S. when the, the U23s were over here in Phoenix. He scored a goal against, I can't remember if it was Mexico or Japan, but he was bright in that camp and really pops when you watch him. I hope we see more of him for the Revs this year. I think he's played about 500 minutes across the last two seasons for New England. Maybe we get a, a bigger look at him this year with Dylan Barrero still sort of coming back. There's opportunity there. I think there will be at least for Esmir Baraktarovic, who also has a really cool story. Uh, I believe his parents are first generation uh, coming over from Eastern Europe, and they settled in Wisconsin. And he, he's just a cool background. Go, go and check out a bit more about his story. One of the frustrations for me in this game, Taylor, beyond the fact that it just wasn't a, a super fun game, I didn't love some of Greg Baralter's choices when it came to the lineup, right? I, I recognize that there is value in having some pillars to sort of build around, because if you don't have a control Right? If you don't have players that you kind of know what to expect from, it's harder to gauge the players around them that you're trying to learn about. Right, If you don't have a Miles Robinson in the middle of your back line to set up the players around him for some semblance of success and to be that barometer, it's harder to get a read. And so I, I get the idea of including some veterans in this lineup. Brian White is not Olympic eligible as a number nine. He is a, a successful MLS player at this point in his career. I mentioned Miles Robinson in the back line. Shaq Moore fits in that category as well. But do you need three of them? I guess is sort of my question. Do you need four of them when you factor in Tim Tillman? I don't know why Greg Baralter didn't go a little younger with this lineup. Tim Tillman is a good player who I was happy to see. Shaq Moore, a little bit less so in the back line. He was at the World Cup for the U.S. You know, isn't isn't going to be a meaningful part of this team going forward. I don't know why you wouldn't shift Dewan Jones, also not Olympic eligible, over to that right side and give either John Tolkien or Caleb Wiley a start. I don't know why you wouldn't maybe give Jack McGlynn more than 30 minutes to close out this game. Some of those decisions about, you know, which overage players were used and how long they were on the field for, 
I didn't love that. You know, mm -hmm. Greg Berhalter gets to see these guys in training, and there is some merit. If, if one guy trains really hard, it's hard to tell him, like, hey, you're not in the lineup because we want to give this youngster a run out. Like, that's a difficult conversation to have, mm -hmm. and I'm sympathetic to that. But I do wish that this lineup had gone a little younger and a little more Olympic, given that, like, ostensibly that was the real purpose of this camp this year. Yeah. Uh, regarding Shaq Moore, you said he isn't going to be playing a, a big part going forward. If he is... Uh-oh, would be uh, my my addition to that statement. Yeah. And yeah, Joe, I, I'm with you. And my first thought was that maybe it's just a sign that the quality wasn't there, that Berhalter wasn't impressed by some of those youngsters. And so he chose to let the veterans go. He chose to put out basically the strongest team from an experience and understanding standpoint. But then when he makes that quadruple change, they looked much better. And yeah. it's a lot of those players coming on. It, it was notable to me, the only other player I had uh, a positive on aside from the ones we've already mentioned would be Jack McGlynn, McGlynn and the first thing he does is play a ball, ball in behind <laughs> that like splits five players and it almost uh, reaches Diego Luna who if he scores that it's an amazing ball that, that stands out and probably has us even more hype for Jack McGlynn but that substitution made a difference I was really hyped on Tolkien until he has the the miss near the very very end of the game that I thought at the very least he should have put on frame but he offered attacking intent and creativity and just a drive <clears throat> to make something happen. And so those changes coming on and making a difference and the ages of those players coming on being 21, 20, 18, and 22 shows you that I think the young players could have had more of an impact yeah. and maybe should have gotten those starts. So I share that frustration a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I think a lot of that is, is fair, and that's totally how I feel, Taylor. One, one final positive for me coming out of this game I watched this game on Sunday. So this game happened Saturday afternoon. I watched it on Sunday. So I was a bit behind and I'd seen the general sentiment about it online. And it felt like everybody had it kind of outside of Esmir Baraktarovic coming off the bench. Everybody had kind of written this game off and everything was, was bad. And there was a lot of bad, mediocre stuff here. But between Kamungo, Baraktarovic, Luna, and McGlynn, like there are some really bright, fun players. All four won't hit, like all four odds are won't become senior national team contributors. You know, odds are that none of them will and at a, at a meaningful level. But I am I'm genuinely excited to monitor all four of those players as the MLS season begins later in February, like at the Olympics, where I think they could all legitimately be in Paris later on this year. I think those players all have genuine quality and they have the potential. Their ceiling is high enough where they could conceivably impact the full national team when everybody's around over the next several years. So I, I'm absolutely going to continue watching those players because I thought they were legit good by and large in this game. And, and that's a fun thing. So if Joe is continuing to shovel the coal on the hype train, I think I am the one who's maybe further back looking for soft spots to land just in case some of these players don't come off. But I, I, I share the, the sentiment roughly, Joe, that I think there were some interesting players who I'd like to see more of and maybe get some looks in camps and maybe they get some cameo minutes uh, throughout the year. But there's no one that I was like, that guy needs to be on the senior team now. I think there's some players who could deputize, who could be on the B or C team. The other interesting wrinkle for me, and and I'm not sure if this was just a, a me thing or if this is an actual thing, I felt like the way the U.S. set up defensively was slightly different uh, because I think of the United States and Joe, feel free to jump in and correct me. I feel like oftentimes in the 4-3-3 defensively, they go to like a 4-5-1 and then maybe one of the central midfielders will pop out and it becomes like a 4-4-2 if that's how they want to engage. In this game, it looked to me like more of a 4-3-2-1 where the wingers came really far back and almost mm. became wingbacks with, uh, with Aiden Morris as your one sort of central midfield pivot. And then it was the two number eights stepping out into more advanced position with the number nine further ahead. But that felt to me like a way to try to limit 
Slovenia's ability to play through the middle, especially by building yeah. out of the back, but then also to more effectively hit on the counter and more effectively pressure. And that isn't a thing that I feel like I've seen as much, both of the number eights popping out and both of the wingers coming deep. Yeah, we don't see that a, a ton for the United States. I sort of loop that, Taylor, underneath just the same blanket 4-3-3 as the general pressing and defensive shape. And then there's all these little variations, right, that pop out based on the moment, based on the tactical game plan. I I think you're right. We did see some of that in this game, and that's not generally the default look for the U.S. They would rather press with their wingers a little bit higher and defend with those players. Maybe with the personnel, specifically in this game, when you don't have Pulisic and Weah bearing down up in the front line, that changes things. But it, it is an interesting observation and something that we, I think when we try to break down U.S. games, try to look into how they press and how they actually approach games defensively, that's like one one tool in Baralter's bucket that he can go to in any given game. It is an interesting observation. High praise from Joe Lowry. High praise. Do what I can. Well- while we're talking about praise, maybe I'll uh, turn it a little bit, Joe. I can be sold on the value of the January-December training camp uh, for getting the players together. I don't, I'm don't. i not quite sold on having this game be played in a stadium with fans in it and being broadcast. Why is hmm. this not like a closed doors uh, you know, kind of arrangement? Because, I mean, even talking about the, the defensive shape or things like that, there's 11 Americans making their debut in this game. I don't know if it helps the discourse for U.S. fans to mm. have this and have us analyze it necessarily. Because yeah. what use is that going forward? I don't, I don't know that the discourse is particularly helpful to the U.S. men's national team. It's a question of, well, can you suffer a little bit of vitriol online and also enjoy the money that's coming into you from your broadcast deals, right? Because you think about why this game's happening and why it's being broadcast. Someone's paying oh, for it, right? Someone is oh, someone money. is giving you money. This game oh, was on TNT, I believe, over the of weekend. Course it's money. So I think 100% this game should be broadcast. Not because I, I like watching the U.S. play and like learning more about the team, but it, it feels like a no-brainer marketing opportunity for U.S. soccer. People are going to be mad online regardless. If you're running and a business, were. you have you, and they were right. If you're running a business, if you're running an organization, I know U.S. soccer is a nonprofit, but they have to run things like a business at times. Like that's how this game works. You Don't need money, that. and I, I think yeah. this is a this is a smart I- move. I didn't watch this game, hence why I've been completely silent. But I did wake up on uh, Sunday morning and trending globally, number one was Berhalter. And I thought, uh-oh, yeah. Twitter, USMNT Twitter is at it again. And I knew right there that this hadn't been an excellent performance. But yeah, I kind of ag- agree with Ryan. In an ideal world, this this game would just be a behind-closed-doors bounce match, a, a, a run-out. Maybe not even necessarily against another international team, against like an MLS team or something like that would, would do the trick, so... I, I, not, I think I like. I, think com- I find it a bit confusing. I don't really have a strong feeling about this, but I I, com- I think I completely disagree with both of you guys. If you're I a young player, if you, if you're, like strongly disagree. I don't really care that much. I just think like I, it's not like it's not worth fighting back against the the Twitter trolls. If you're Esmir Baraktarovic or Greg Baralter trying to give an 18 year old a first team debut, you want fans in the stands. Like you want the game to be on TV. You want this to be as big of a moment. Note, it's not a big moment, but as big of a moment as possible for these players. Like, you want to simulate a real game and a real atmosphere, even though you don't really get to either one of those things. There's there's absolutely yeah. no reason not to try, even separating the financial aspects. I understand, Joe, what you're saying about, like, basically ignore the discourse, but there's a reality to this. And if a player... The reality is that Greg Brother came back for a second cycle, was rehired. Clearly, U.S. soccer does not care about the discourse. But, but that could stun, in theory, hypothetically could stun a player's development in a game that doesn't matter. Like, this game doesn't matter at all. Um, Hypo- hypothetically, yeah. If, if a Twitter troll is going to derail a professional player's career, they were not meant to be a professional. That is, but, that is my statement on that. 
and I and I think you're using that hypothetical one way. You could use it a different way, which has happened in the past. The players have had such good January camps and such good performances or strong performances in that friendly that they then get continued call-ups from there and they become either key members of the team for a while or squad members of the team for a while. But you can have players sort of elevate their standing by not standing out in a bad way or standing out in a good way in this game. On top of that, I do think there are some other considerations to factor in, including that now, for example, Baratarovic has one cap in the one game that he's been eligible for, I think. So like you can maybe then if he gets a move, maybe that one cap factors in. I do think there's other players in the past who have gotten performance incentives for getting that cap, for making a USMNT appearance. And then also for players who are looking to move or looking to get a new deal, being capped by the US is a thing that you can point to as a sign that you are progressing well. And I think with that in mind, the January camp has, in some cases, been a, hey, you had a really good MLS season. Maybe your team's out of the playoffs. Maybe uh, you're not going to get a call up at, at the senior senior team level, but we want to reward you for that season and see how you look in a U.S. jersey and what you can do. So I think there are positives to having that game. It is always just a little bit of a, a downward thing that we're playing. Yeah. We're oftentimes playing teams that themselves are bringing over cd squads i think for slovenia they had 13 debutants in this game so it's not as though you're getting the strongest slovenian team or anything like that that does sort of hurt it i think in the past it's been like iceland and maybe serbia you don't always get that that opponent who's bringing their a team that's really that test it does seem like it is not not even a glorified friendly it's just a a not glorified semi-friendly on that note, we're going to take a quick break and come back to some competitive games, including the Premier League and much more back shortly. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early. There are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with. And unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our weekend review. Why don't we turn our attention to that there Premier League in its winter break uh, of sorts with uh, five games happening this weekend. We had Arsenal with a 5-0 win over Crystal Palace. Arsenal back in the title race with this one. Proof, Graham, if it was ever needed, that being fed steak by Salt Bay <laughs> is good for team performance. Yeah, uh, Arsenal just needed to be refueled by yeah. uh, a, a man uh, shaking salt over, all over meat. Yeah, that's the, that's the secret. And also the Salt Bay restaurant. Yeah, third in the Premier League, <laughs> equal on points with City at the moment. They have played a game more, of course, but... Um, yeah, Graham, pretty pretty good performance from Arsenal, uh, albeit not a great one from Crystal Palace, who had obviously uh, injuries here, missing key players, and in pretty bad form as well. Uh, all is not good in the other side of London there. Yeah, so let's start with Arsenal first, given that they were emphatic winners in this one. The big talking point, of course, over the, the many winter break uh, was, have Arsenal forgotten how to score goals? On this basis, no, they haven't forgotten. They're very good at it. Although it should be mentioned, as you as you say there, Ryan, that Crystal Palace are at a pretty low ebb at the moment. And also, uh, two of the five goals came late on when Palace were pretty much already beaten at that point. But nonetheless, this was much more like the old Arsenal, and set pieces were a really important part of this win for them. They've scored more set pieces than any other Premier League team this season. They've scored 13, uh, two ahead of, or one ahead of Everton in that list, and the first two goals in this game come from corner kicks. And Nicholas Jover is Arsenal's uh, set-piece coach, and he's he's such a prominent figure in that, in that coaching team. If you watch the games, he spends a lot of time on the touchline, which is kind of unusual for a specialist coach. You don't see the Liverpool... Um, throw-ins coach on the touchline very often and if you did I think the proper football men in English football would explode at the sight of that but Jover spends a lot of time on the touchline he's pretty uh, prominent and I read that Arsenal spent a lot of the winter break working on set pieces and that showed there's a lot of good stuff if you look at the first two goals there's a lot of good stuff that's happening with blockers and pinning opposition defenders so for the first goal it's Trossard who is on um, it's Joachim Anderson and so Gabriel has a clear run for the, for the header the second goal it's Ben White on, on um, Dean Henderson the goalkeeper and then match of the day also highlighted that Martin Odegaard might be signalling certain set piece routines by pulling his socks up um, which honestly the amount of effort that Arsenal put into set pieces it wouldn't surprise me if that is true obviously players do have certain signals and match of the day seem to suggest that that is one of Arsenal's signal in terms of, in terms of their um, general play I thought the left side was back to its best as well such an important area for them so Zinchenko has faced a bit of criticism this season, but when you get him on the ball and you have those combinations between Jesus drifting out and in this case, Trossard, who started over Martinelli, which was fairly interesting, and then you have those rotations between Odegaard, Odegaard and, and Havertz, and then what that does is it opens up space on the right for that quick switch out to Bakaya Saka for him to drive it as his, his man, and then you have Martinelli 
to come off the bench and use his pace to get in behind a, a, a Crystal Palace, a tired Crystal Palace defence. I thought it all worked very well. And as I say, this was much more like what we've come to um, come accustomed to see from Arsenal over the last two seasons. Graham, with the Odegaard shin pad signalling, was it like pulls up left sock, near post, pulls up right sock, far post, pulls up both, go to the middle? Over I think bar. so, yeah. I think it was something a lot. It was, there was a left and right orientation going on, and it was front post, near post. Yeah, so I, I can't quite remember the exact routine, but it was something like that. Wow. The, the amount of times players have to adjust that in-game and at various stoppages, <laughs> like that feels very risky that he could just be absentmindedly <laughs> doing it and then everybody just like sets up to, for a corner yeah. out of nowhere. I feel like you got to be really careful with when you're adjusting and, things if that's the case. And there's only certain players you can ask to do that sort of thing. Like Pep Guardiola, okay, Jack Grealish, you're going to be the guy who's <laughs> indicating any... Uh, okay, oh, where are need they? to get some socks. <laughs> uh, my, my favorite <laughs> signal is the, the corner taker who puts both hands up in the air, which to, to me seems to signal, I am taking a corner. <laughs> <laughs> we all, I think we, that's some kind of signal. <laughs> we always had it as as left hand in the air, like the teams I played on was left hand in the air near post, right hand in the air far post, both hands dri- driven towards the middle. But I'm sure it's much more elaborate than that. Uh, and I guess it it's it's good to have these things. It it maybe isn't as useful when the other team's defenders are just like, nah, go ahead, run on in. Chris yeah. Richards for both yeah. of these opening goals. Uh, I, not good. Not yeah. good is the 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 TLDR. Uh, trying to cover Gabriel, the one time he gets kind of like thrown, but not really thrown, but just completely goes the wrong way and loses track. The next time he's actively trying to hug him the whole way and still can't really do anything about it. It was rough stuff from Chris Richards yeah. trying to defend these set pieces. You guys know we talked about Richards as the number six before, and I said, yeah, it's probably not his long term position. I think he's better. Maybe I'm maybe I'm changing my mind on that, and maybe Richards should find more comfort in central midfield. No, I mean he he is a center back, but he struggled very much dealing with Gabriel. I, I thought it was a first half brace from an opposing center back who dunked on Richards twice. Ultimately the second Gabriel goal was ruled a Dean Henderson own goal. So Richards so, sort of gets off there. Not really. He he really struggled. But that's the thing about about teams that that put opposing defenses in bad spots. That's the teams about. That's the thing about teams who are really really good at any given thing in the attack. They force defenders to make mistakes. Like they make it so easy to make mistakes. And Arsenal, with their spacing and their timing on their set pieces, make life miserable for opposing defenders. Not just center backs, but anybody tasked with marking inside the box. But that being said, it, it just straight up wasn't good enough for Chris Richards. And watching this game. You know, you go into the locker room. I imagine everybody's kind of had this experience. And whether you've screwed up or, or one of your teammates has, like, you know what's coming. You know they feel terrible because the only reason you're losing is because they have have really just laid an egg on the field. Like, that is Richards. And I felt bad for him and really, like, just kind of secondhand embarrassment of being in that locker room. That's a terrible situation. Hopefully, it's something that he grows from and moves on from. But Arsenal continue, Graham, as you said, to put teams in really terrible spot with their willingness to allocate resources in time, in training, and in, in the coaching staff to set pieces, which is a massive part of this sport that nobody really likes talking about. If we want to have, like, not even a silver lining, but it's just worth noting, Richards does not do well on either of these goals, defending either one of these goals. It is not as though Crystal Palace were were alive to everything from the jump. No. They looked not uh, up to speed early. Uh, they have plenty of performers who I think have rough games across the board. But then after, I would say, the third goal, they're really, they really are just sort of giving up, uh, exemplified by Roy Hodgson saying that maybe, <laughs> I believe like paraphrasing one of his quotes was like, maybe our changes should have been 
more proactive to preserve the three nil, which was an odd thing to say Ooh. when you're losing three nil, but he has not done a very good job of making it seem like he still wants to be there. And he has a lot of fighting spirit. It feels like a lot of his explanations are geared towards. Yeah. Here's why things aren't going well and why they're sort of not my fault, even as I'm trying to do what I can. Oh, but boy. for Crystal Palace right now, uh, <laughs> the numbers are not great. Two wins in the last 15 matches, two goals in the last five games. They do have injuries. As Ryan mentioned, Jordan Ayew is away for international duty. But it, it does seem like the the Palace message board that I was reading today was very much waiting for Roy Hodgson to be sacked was half of it. And the other half pointing out that there's no chance he's going to be sacked because there's no one uh, readily apparent to take over and the ownership maybe isn't as inclined to spend a bunch of money. So I don't know how it gets better for Palace if it gets better. I guess their only hope would be that other teams are worse and they don't fully slide into the relegation zone. Uh, Taylor, please don't go on the Palace message board. Thank you. Graham, go on. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, every season at this at this time of year, you get no good comes from there, Taylor. Team. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you get at least one team who you feel like are just kind of sliding towards relegation. Last season, it was Leicester City who ultimately went down because they waited too long to act to do anything about Brendan Rodgers. And Crystal Palace fans, I haven't been on the forums, Taylor, which by the sounds of it is probably good for my health, but um, they did have a big banner complaining during the match, something about weak decisions taking us backwards. And Mm. to be honest, I agree, because Roy Hodgson did a surprisingly good job last season of keeping Palace safe last season. I thought that was an atrocious appointment when he came in, um, replaced Patrick Vieira, and there was an upturn in form. He, there's absolutely no way, and this isn't hindsight, I argued this at the start of the season, there is no way he should have been given that job for yeah. this season. They need someone to come in and give them an identity, give them some fresh ideas, and that hasn't happened at all. That's not what Roy Hodgson does at this point of his career. And I do worry for Crystal Palace that they are sliding towards that, that danger zone. It wouldn't surprise me if they get really thickly involved in that relegation scrap of the last few months of the season. Grand, that was kind of the consensus was Hodgson did a really good job last season, should not have been uh, allowed to stay on like on a permanent basis. And they needed to look elsewhere to rejuvenate the squad and rejuvenate the style. The other sort of bummer note that I saw was somebody pointed out that Graham Potter was in attendance. And maybe that mm-hmm. means he is being lined up to take over at Crystal Palace. And then multiple people pointed out that he was at like the Sheffield game the week before and the Southampton game the week before that culminating in someone just saying like i think he just goes to football games sorry guys (laughs) and so i don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon you never know but it seems unlikely i did hear they mentioned on another podcast that um he was taking notes as well and getting some fans excited but also that palace had turned him down reportedly because he was brighton coach and the rivalry that exists between those two teams which exists for reasons um Uh, because they're both named seagulls is that roughly yeah seagulls part of it um that that doesn't feel like a strong enough reason not to employ him at this point, frankly, but here we are. Oh, if they can get Grim Potter, they should get Grim Potter. Yeah. I'm not entirely sure that that... I think he'd be aiming a little bit higher than, than yeah. Crystal Palace at this point. Those notes, I imagine, were pro- was probably just a shopping list. <laughs> just, like yeah. eggs, milk, <laughs> bread. <laughs> what should I, I spend I, I all my Chelsea money on today? I, w- I wish the notepad just said, don't take Palace job. <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. was the note that he wrote down. <laughs> yeah. You, on a serious note, they, uh, Steve Cooper is the guy that they've approached in the past and there seems to be mm. a, an interest in. That That would feel um, a little bit more appropriate for both parties, right. I think. Yeah, very good. Okay. Uh, on Sunday, Bournemouth had a 4-0 home shellacking at the hands of Liverpool. Nunes and Jota with the braces there. Uh, yeah, Liverpool doing quite well, Graham, at the moment, aren't they? Very good. They are 
They are indeed. They're five points clear at the top of the Premier League table and it feels like not many people, besides possibly Liverpool fans, have noticed that they're five points clear at the top of the Premier League table. Table. This was a big game for Liverpool's attack. It was a slow start by them, which was actually a, a feature of... The, it's been a feature of their season so far. It was goalless at half-time. had been a fairly even match until that point. But in the second half, Jota and Nunes in particular came alive and that could be especially positive for Liverpool because Mohamed Salah is actually back at the club from AFCON. Yep. That is not good news for Liverpool, though, because he is recovering from an injury that he has picked up at the tournament. So it feels like everyone is being very coy on how serious that injury is. There's talk about him going back to the tournament if Egypt make the semi-finals. But if that is a serious injury, it's going to be on players like Jota and Nunes to keep this, this title challenge going. I think uh, Dugo Jota, in particular, is often slept on as a finisher because in terms of his opportunism inside the box, I don't think there's many better in the Premier League than him. He's got five goals and four assists in his last nine games for Liverpool. And the number of different ways that he can put the ball in the back of the net is, is impressive. He's good in the air. He has that kind of natural knack of knowing where the ball is going to fall inside the box. Sometimes it's a bit unconventional, like when he... Uh, he, he, one of the goals he scores in this game comes from an absolute air shot where everyone inside the Vitality Stadium or the Bournemouth fans at least do that thing where they go, way! And then his next touch is a finish into the back of the net. So it's a little bit unco unconventional at times, but yeah, Jota and Nunes are, are, are firing on all cylinders at the moment and Liverpool need that to be the case while Salah is, is potentially out for a while. Yeah, and Graham, I'm glad you highlighted Darwin Nunes. It's hard not to when he scores a brace and a 4-0 win. We, we kind of dump on Darwin Nunes when he doesn't score or miss his chances. So I think it's important to go out here and, and give him credit when he puts multiple balls in the back of the net in any single game or, or does any of that throughout the season. Seven goals in the Premier League, which is, is still not the return that Liverpool would have hoped after a mediocre season last year when it comes to the actual production from Darwin Nunes. But he was really good in this game. Really, really good. His ability to stretch opposing back lines is not the, the top skill that you think would come out against a team like Bournemouth. But one of the things that makes Darwin Nunes so special is that he doesn't just need a full half of the field to run into. He can time his runs and accelerate quickly enough that he can break in behind like in a third of the field, right? He can break in behind and test opposing back lines to meet really sharp service from his teammates in limited space. And he doesn't do it quite as well as Erling Holland does it, but there are similarities in that way. Both of those players are fantastic at testing and really pushing back opposing back fours or back fives. And Nunes did that really well in this game. That's where his first goal comes from. And then a second goal, even though he played a lot off to the left in this game, is just like the classic number nine finish. He crashes the goal mouth and finishes and does does whatever he needs to do to put the ball in the back of the net. I think it ends up hitting off of his right foot or, or he hits the ball with his right foot, the outside of it, and into the back of the net. A four new win for Liverpool is, is made very, very comfortable by a strong Darwin Nunes performance. Indeed. I did the classic Ryan thing of uh, nil-nil at halftime. Neither team looked like scoring at all, so switch it off and do something else. And then four goals in the second <laughs> half. Classic me. Uh, Brentford with a 3-2 win over Nottingham Forest. Ivan Tony back after his uh, yeah. betting ban. Uh, scored, the Brentford, uh, scored Brentford's first goal and gave us a very interesting scenario, Graham. Uh, moving the ball for his free kick, but also moving the foam, the referee's invisible <laughs> spray. He actually moved a bit of it and sort of repainted it himself. Uh, so he took the free kick technically away from where the referee marked it. Uh, Nuno Espirito Santo did not like this. Uh, obviously um tony's quote after the game graham you have a yard either way so i moved it a bit around the corner he said 
do you have a yard? No, he's just made way? that up. He's <laughs> he's just the thing is about Ivan Tony. He's so confident as a as a as a character that you listen to that and you're like, yeah, that must be true. Yeah. If Ivan Tony says it's true, then yeah, they, you must have a yard either way. You don't. <laughs> the laws do not account for that. But yeah, that the, the best bit was him uh, wiping the. I agree with the free kick, the the vanishing spray, wiping it to make it seem so that basically if the referee looked back at it and went, I don't think that's where the ball was when I put it down. But the foam's there. That must yeah. be where the free Checks kick out. should be. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was absolutely fantastic. Nottingham Forest, they've written to the PGMOL about this. I personally think that is just a, a nonsense because while well, Ivan Tony is a little bit mischievous in moving that ball, surely someone in the forest wall or Matt Turner should have realised that Ivan Tony had this clear sight of goal around the wall. Like, you, you're allowed to move as well. Obviously, the wall has been set. <laughs> But just because Tony's put the ball down, the wall's not like, well, we can't move now. Like, there's nothing that we can do about this. They can move to to block the shot. So, um, yeah, just a very confusing scenario. But I did kind of, I did kind of love it. And I also loved Ivan Tony being back. They gave him this big WWE style build up with the light show, and and I think the, there was a video set to the Undertaker's music. Um, which I enjoyed. A little bit cringe. It feels like an English football. As a people, as British people, were not confident enough for that but Ivan Tony doesn't have a problem with confidence and have been out for eight months you wouldn't have been able to tell he was uh, he was fantastic in this match and exactly the kind of player that Brentford have been missing there seem to be a couple schools of thought on this one Matt Turner should have done better setting up his wall two the wall should have done a better job setting up and also paying attention to Ivan Tony or three and this seems to be a lot of people online Ivan Tony is a cheat and and this should this is disgraceful and I am Similarly inclined to Graham, where I think like eh, this is a this is like a, a cheeky move by him, which I, I I guess is against the rules, but at the same time, official has to catch that. Uh, VAR can't review it, I think, because they don't review restarts, is what I saw written. Uh, who knows if that's true, but that's the explanation of the week. Um, but I do think Matt Turner doesn't do a great job of setting the wall up to begin with. It feels like from certain angles you can see that Ivan Tony is going to try to bend it around the wall into that into the spot where he does because he's right-footed and that's kind of always where he's going to go so Turner doesn't set the wall up that well and I kind of think that's what starts Ivan Tony in moving the ball over a little bit more and a little bit more because the wall just keeps not adjusting and keeps not paying paying attention to him and Turner keeps having to go back to check and I think part of that was the ball being moved and him being like wait I thought I had this set up and now it seems like that that shot is wide open but at the same time that shot stays wide open so I think Turner doesn't really do a good job of initially setting up the wall, doesn't do a good job of communicating with the wall that they need to move, and I think the wall itself does not do a very good job of adjusting and keeping track of the shooter or where the ball is. And that is, it seems like that might be an easy thing to do, but if you're standing in the wall, you don't have much else to do, especially if only one person is directing you. If you have one person in the wall listening to the goalkeeper who's saying, move that way, that person is oftentimes just going to pull people with him. And I personally feel like your job in the wall is to then be observing what's happening and kind of standing there facing the shot. So if a player picks up the ball and puts it down in a, puts it down in a different location, you have to be able to spot that and say, hey, he moved the ball. We've either got to move or you've got to tell the official. And so I think it's it's cheekiness from Ivan Tony. I don't have nearly as much of a problem with it as some people seem to. But I think Nottingham Forest have a lot of questions to answer with the way they handled it. They do indeed. Uh, Sheffield United elsewhere with a 2-2 draw against West Ham. Uh, the 100 100- Eighth minute penalty equaliser for Sheffield United, the latest goal in Premier League history. Fun. Great. <laughs> Break time, everybody. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk Liga, we'll talk Bundesliga, we'll talk much, much more. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, 
everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Time to Soccer Show. Welcome back. We go now to La Liga. Well, Real Madrid had a 3-2 win over Almeria, a controversial one at that, Graham Ruthven. Uh, Danny Carvajal with a strike in the ninth minute of stoppage time to seal it for Real Madrid against Almeria, who are bottom of La Liga, winless all season. Um, but a few folks calling out the officiating, which seemed to go a little bit in the home side's favour. You could say that. Yes. So for a long time in this game, it looked like Real Madrid's winning run. Taylor would say that. And he's going to say that (laughs) after I've finished talking. I Uh I think it's what's going to happen. Um, For a long time, it looked like Real Madrid, yeah, their their winning run was was going to come to an end. They were 1-0 down inside the first minute. Then Edgar scores an absolute screamer to put Almeria 2-0 up before half time. Then the VR fun and games began, which was the real story from this match. So Real Madrid got a penalty for a handball when Hosselu looked uh, very much to be climbing all over the back of the, the Almeria defender. Spot, ke- spot kick is given, uh, Jude Bellingham scores it because that's what he does. Then even more controversially, Almeria have a, a third goal from former Real Madrid player uh, Ser- uh, Sergio Arribas pulled goal. all the way back for a foul in the build-up. Now, it might have been a foul for a hand into the face of, I think it's Bellingham it in, in, in the build-up. Yeah, it is Bellingham. But it very much felt like the match had been re-refereed, um, which was that was the second VR decision in Real Madrid's favour. Then you have the Vinicius equaliser, which is the one I feel the most strong, the most strongly about. To my eye, that comes off his arm it does. Uh, and shouldn't and shouldn't have counted. But after a long VR review, it, it it's given as a goal, and then once once that goal is given, you just know Real Madrid are going to score a late winner, and it came from as you say, Ryan Danny Carvajal in the the 99th minute. So you couldn't not feel sorry for Almeria at full time because they gave Real Madrid so many problems on the break. They looked dangerous. They were getting in behind, but for three big refereeing decisions, um, certainly the Vinicius handball one to go against them, yeah, it left a bitter taste in the mouth, shall we say. And I did see some people even being frustrated with the amount of uh, injury time, which leads to Danny Carvajal's uh, eventual winner. I don't have a problem with that. When you have the number of VAR reviews, the number of substitutions, the goals, it's always go- and time wasting itself. It's going to slow things down. There's going to be extra time. But those decisions that Graham already outlined are, I would say, increasingly egregious because it is it does touch the player's hand for the first one. So it is technically a handball, but the player is not looking for it, does not see it. I would say he's just running and sort of trying to keep like like his the line going. So it, to me, it's not like he's trying to gain an advantage. And Grant, to your point, Graham, there also seem to be multiple other fouls in there that uh, both are fouls and also obscure his view. But it still touches his hand. It just feels incredibly harsh. But then that disallowed goal, like for people who have not seen it, the player wins it in uh, their his own half, in, in Almeria's own half off of Jude Bellingham and it's very much a wins it off Jude Bellingham and I saw it as as Bellingham almost trying to like save face a little bit for for coughing it up and 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 goes down he gets a hit but it's the thing where the player has won the ball 
And then Bellingham is applying pressure and the player is turning out of that. And to do so, he's putting his hand up to gauge where the player is so he can sort of turn and not turn right into the guy. And his hand just goes up and, and gets Bellingham there. But it didn't seem, it certainly wasn't intentional and it didn't seem like it actually did any harm. It wasn't a poke in the eye or anything like that. And so for it to come all the way back, absolutely, Graham, you said it really well. It just seems like re-refereeing, re-officiating the game. And then the last one, I'm assuming because it was given as a goal on the pitch, they would argue some angles made it seem like a handball, some angles made it seem like it came off the shoulder, so the original ruling stands. But I know there are angles that make it seem like it comes off the shoulder, but there is one where it is very clearly coming off of his off his bicep or like it, whatever this would be. Uh, and and I think right there, it, it just, you have to call that one back. It ha- That is definitely a handball because there is an angle where it's clearly hitting his arm. So you could argue like it goes from the shoulder down to the arm and maybe it hits the shoulder first. But it the decisions were really, really, really strange, especially since they all come from VAR. And there is much speculation about refereeing controversies and bribery and the like when it comes to officiating. I don't really think that needs to be discussed here. I think it's just bad officiating. And we've seen it a lot in La Liga this season. Every team seems to have a ton of complaints about the way matches have been officiated, about the way VAR is utilized. This game felt like a little bit of a crime. And I understand why Almeria and their supporters and their players are so frustrated by how this played out. It was a blissful few months that we had, fellas, without a refereeing controversy. It feels like it's been a while since we had that whole string in the Premier League. No, we just haven't been talking about them because <laughs> okay. you get so annoyed about We've it. We've just too. agreed as a collective not to talk about them. <laughs> um, well, I'm honored, and uh, I'm sorry uh, for Almeida offense and the, the fact that this didn't go your way. But it has been blissful, folks, while it's lasted. I mean, we, we did have a foam incident in, just this weekend in the Premier League as well, Joe. That's a refereeing incident of sorts, I suppose, technically. Yeah, OK, I'll be quiet. Uh, Barcelona with a 4-2 win at Real Betis this weekend. And also Graham Girona staying top of the pile with a 5-1 win over rather troubled Sevilla at the moment. Yeah, so a quick beat on Barcelona. First of all, I thought this was one of their best performances of the season. But it says something about how things have been going for them recently that they were a few minutes from dropping points in this match. Because even when Barca are in controls in control of games, as they were at 2-0 up here, they always drop out of matches. And when they drop out of matches, they drop out dramatically. So when Isco got one goal back, you knew another one was coming, and it did three minutes later to make it 2-2. At that point, it felt like Betis were going to run over the top of Barca. They had a number of good opportunities heading into stoppage time. It really could have gone either way. It was end-to-end, but that kind of ultimately opened up the the Betis defence for Felix and and Ferran Torres to get through and score twice. It finishes 4-2. As for Girona... They're just incredible. Like, I don't know what else there is to say about Girona at this point. They continue to set the pace. This was an amazing performance. As I say, it's the kind of thing we've we've, we've come to expect from them this season. They are playing the best football in Spain right now. Sevilla actually scored the first goal in this match, but then Girona were 3-1 up by the 20-minute mark, and Artem Jobic um, had scored a, a six-minute hat-trick soon after that. So... Even by their usual standards, Girona, this was emphatic. I thought uh, Savino was exceptional. Sevilla couldn't handle him down the down the left side. And so many dangerous attacks came through him. And the timing of this win was especially important for Girona because last week they drew 0-0 against the aforementioned Almeria. And you just got the sense that, I watched that match, and I just got the sense that they were maybe losing a bit of momentum. They went down to 10 men in that game. There was It felt like they were losing a little bit of steam. But this was an emphatic return to, return to their best form. And I think everyone is looking ahead to that match against Real Madrid on February 10th and circling that one in the calendar because that's going to be a cracker. Yeah, one more quick note on that Betis-Barcelona game. Johnny Cardoso got his first ever start, first ever appearance for Real Betis, a move that I, I'm really, really 
curious to see how it's going to go for him. I like this move on paper. I don't know exactly what his role is going to be going forward, but he does get the start in this game, comes off around the 70th minute. Frankly, I didn't think he was particularly good. I thought he was fine, but but not great. Wasn't terrible either. Just kind of was there playing as part of the double pivot behind Isco for Raul Batiste, but certainly something to watch for, for USMNT fans. He didn't necessarily look out of place, Johnny Cardoso, and that's a good sign, going from Internacional to a higher level now in La Liga. Somebody that I think we'll all be watching now a bit closer moving forward. Over to Germany, where Bayern Munich had a home defeat at the hands of Werder Bremen. A 1-0 win there for Bremen. Uh, Mitchell Weisser with the goal there. Very good goal it was too. Uh, Bayern's first home league defeat of the season. They're now seven points behind Bayer Leverkusen. Uh, they have a game in hand, Graham, against uh, Union Berlin on Wednesday to try and close that gap. But, uh, oh boy. Yeah, so this is the furthest from first place. I'll try and get this fact right. The furthest from first place Bayern Munich have been after 17 fixtures of the last 11 Bundesliga seasons that they've won the title in, if that makes any sense. So they're going to have to come from further back than ever before to win this Bundesliga title. I think I've been a bit blasé about the Bundesliga title race this season. And to defend myself a little bit, I think with some reason, given how strong Bayern have been in the past, um, how in the in, in past seasons, like Dortmund last last year, you know, Bayern Munich weren't very good, very strong, but they still managed to win the title. I still think we'll see a drop-off from Lever- Leverkusen at some point in the season. But this is a real challenge that Bayern are facing this season. They haven't had a great campaign. Leverkusen, as I think we'll come on to talk about them a little bit later on, they are serious contenders. And that latter part is the difference from last season where Dortmund nearly became champions by default. This Leverkusen team is much, much better than Dortmund ever were last season. And a lot of the problems that Bayern Munich have this season, I, I, I don't think have been solved. From last season, so there's two sides to this this discussion around Bayern Munich after this match because on this on on another day, I think they could have won this one. They did have some opportunities. They had more shots by a distance. Their xG wasn't terrible. It was just under two. But then even taking that into account, the vulnerabilities are clearly there. Before Weiser scores the winner, which by the way was a sensational solo goal, uh, Jinma has a goal in the first half chalked off for for a, a foul in the in the build up. But in that moment, Bayern's defence basically doesn't exist. The ball is played through. He is inside his own half, behind the two Bayern defenders, who are, in my opinion, way too high up the pitch. They are having issues with the connection between the midfield and the defence and defensive transition. We've seen that a number of times this season, which is why you get chat about a number six coming in to that squad. Rafael Guerrero played in central midfield in this match, which seems like a weird fit for me. Then there's the concern over the fullbacks. Conrad Leimer was at right back again in this match. Good player, Conrad Leimer, but I I don't know if he offers you much going forward or even defensively, to be honest. I'm not sure if he's got those natural defensive instincts. So, can I ask a question Um, Conrad Leimer is a holding midfielder, yes? Or can be a central midfielder? Rafael Guerrero is a fullback, yes? (laughs) I I see where you're going with this. I I am assuming I have missed something in that they've tried Leimer as one of the midfielders and it just hasn't worked for whatever reason. But that continues to blow my mind that he has a switch right there that does seem like it would allow them to have the two very attacking fullbacks they want in uh, uh, Alfonso Davies and and Guerrero and then still have a really, really strong midfield. I I don't know. What I saw this weekend was a lot of speculation about Thomas Tuchel and him not getting the best out of this team. And it doesn't seem like that speculation is going to go anywhere. So I just wanted to ask if you had seen any reason why Limer might not be starting in the middle or why Guerrero might make more sense. But it sounds like maybe the answer to that is no. No, it is a confusing situation. Obviously, Guerrero is more suited to playing on the left than on the right. So I don't know if he is so unsuited to playing on the right that Conrad Limer, who can... 
we have seen him play even before his Bayern Munich days. We've seen him play at that mm-hmm. right back position. I don't know if Guerrero is so unsuited that Tuchel feels he has no option but to play Conrad Leimer in that position. But I, I think it was Manuel Veith tweeting over the weekend that there's this growing sense that this Bayern squad has just reached the end of a cycle. The intensity isn't there anymore. Tuchel called that out after the match. He thought it was a, a pretty lethargic performance. It all feels very flat. And that can happen to a successful team after a while. We've seen it a couple of times with Liverpool under Klopp. We've seen a, a, even Barcelona, a Pep's Barcelona team, his final season there. There was a bit of a drop-off. So it, it, I wonder if that's what's happening with this Bayern Munich squad at the moment. And it, certainly this is a result that certainly makes me have second thoughts about Bayern Munich in this, in this title race. I'm, wow. not, I'm wavering at this point. I'm not quite so certain right now. Finally, Bayern reaching the end of that 55-year cycle they've been on. Just uh, as Harry Kane joined. <laughs> yeah, indeed, coincidence. Uh, Taylor Rockwell's by Leverkusen refusing Woo-hoo. to lose a 3-2 win at Emmy Leipzig for them, twice coming from a goal down, scoring a 91st-minute winner, seven points ahead, Taylor, in the Bundesliga. Life is good for you and Xabi Alonso. It is. It very much is. And I think Graham outlined why this result uh, could be really important for Leverkusen going forward. Interestingly, the commentators talked about how, like, this is the type of gritty game you have to grind out if you want to be champions. And I felt like this was the type of game where if you get a point, you should be kind of happy because Leipzig have been a strong team of late. And I think will be a strong team in the run-in. Whereas Bayern, I think, losing to Werder Bremen, that feels like a game that you need to grind out and get the win. But whatever. Uh, To the point of this game, I thought given that Leipzig lost to Frankfurt last weekend, and uh, I, I took a lot of notes on that one about how Leipzig looked good looked ball dominant, but also could not create clear-cut opportunities. And part of that was Frankfurt doing a lot of really interesting stuff defensively, but part of that was Leipzig just looking dull. For them to come out and get a goal very quickly, to look absolutely lethal on the break, and just look very good in the attack, I thought this might be the Leipzig turnaround, and this might be the start of a stronger second half of the season for them, which, in my mind, gives even more credit to the way Leverkusen fight back. It's two set-piece goals. It's a goal... I had to go back and watch, and my ESPN Plus feed kept pausing, which is super fun. Uh, but to me, it is the their second goal, Leverkusen, is straight from kickoff, basically. But I think it's between 25 and 30 passes. It's three minutes of just sustained possession. They move the ball really well. They, they recycle it a couple times. But it ends up being just a, a really good ball and, and a really smart possession and, and a really nice goal. But they had really nice goals off set pieces, really nice sort of balls to the back post where a player makes a really well-timed run and the fact that they get this win the way they do in injury time with major injuries occurring along the way it it feels like another really important game that could have gone a different way and could then set up a very different narrative but right now if you're Bayer Leverkusen I think you come away from this one really starting to believe like maybe this could actually happen yeah completely agree Taylor this is the kind of result and performance that does move the needle in a title race and you could tell in the way that Leverkusen celebrated they knew this was a big moment for them in their season and it's worth just underlining those circumstances particularly with the injuries that you mentioned there Taylor so Jeremy Frimpong comes off with an injury in the first half I haven't seen any reporting on how serious that injury is that could certainly be a negative from this game because as we've outlined previously he's just so important to the way that Leverkusen play it was knee to knee right and then he tries to play on a little bit and then just sits back down so maybe it's just a bruise maybe it just felt weird but that's the hope but anything to do with anything to do with knees makes me nervous and so hopefully just because I want to see a good a good title race in the Bundesliga hopefully it's not so serious and then Victor Boniface is out through injury as well he is out for at least the next month so you're arguably talking about 
two of Leverkusen's maybe like four most important players, if you factor in Grimaldo potentially and Hincapié, those are the kind of the four most important players in my mind. So I do wonder if there will be a staggered impact from this match. They need to keep this momentum going because even though Bayern Munich lose to Werder Bremen, they'll be back. They'll string the wins together um, over the next few weeks. Over to Serie A, where uh, AC Milan had a 3-2 win at Udinese, a 93rd-minute winner from Noah Akafor in that one. Hilariously unmarked on a corner, much less hilarious, the unfortunate circumstances which preceded it. Uh, the game temporarily suspended as Milan keeper Mike Mignon uh, walked off the field uh, due to racist abuse from the home fans. He alerted the referees uh, on uh, before leaving the pitch. Uh, the team's coming off the field temporarily for that one. Um, yeah, Gianni, Gianni Infantino has called for the implementation of an automatic forfeit of games for teams whose fans commit racist abuse. Uh, Which, frankly, is not is not the you know for all the terrible ideas Gianni Infantino yeah. has had. That is one of those scenarios. You know that meme of worst person you know make has made just made a great point. It's mm. kind of a, a bit <laughs> like that with Gianni Infantino and this suggestion because something needs to happen. Obviously, the response from this isn't the first time that we've seen this by any stretch of the imagination in Serie A. Not that it doesn't happen elsewhere, but there have been a lot of occurrences of racism at games in Italy over the last few years. And the response from the league is always weak. So there's no no reason to believe anything will change depressingly. Um, and this is where I fully back Mike Magnon and also the AC Milan players taking matters into their own hands. Uh, there's no reason Magnon should just accept that situation and fair play to his teammates in backing him and, and walking off with him. But we've had stadium closures for fans. I think it's now time to consider points deductions. You know, if there's points deductions for financial discrepancies like we've seen in the Premier League then I think penalties for racism or repeated instances of racism should definitely be on the table yeah absolutely fair enough um Roma uh with a 2-1 win over Hellas Verona with their new coach Daniel De Rossi in Legend. charge <laughs> snapping yeah yeah winless streak we all said it would happen uh Joe Joe uh, putting in our show notes he very much predicted this this is a you're predicting a return to glory for Roma, presumably, Joe? Well, I mean, we talked about this in the in the Big Thing episode. Even though Graham obviously hated this appointment and never believed it in the first place and loves Jose. No. Like, although Graham, it does seem like absolutely adores Jose Mourinho. Like, this, this, um, <laughs> this little uptick in form for Roma, I think, was always sort of expected, right? There are much larger questions about what the direction of this club is. And Graham made some very good points on the big thing about, is this the right time to make the move or would you be better off just riding Jose Mourinho until the end of the year? Those are all completely fair arguments, despite the tongue being in my cheek. But Roma have been a little bit better than their actual performances have shown this year. And they've been dealing with a ton of injuries. So you get Paulo Dybala in this team and he starts to cook and you get this really quality group of players against a team that is just straight up not nearly as good as Roma. Hellas Verona down in 18th in the in the Serie A table. I don't think this is a big surprise, nor do I think Roma making a bit of a push up at least towards the edges of the Champions League spots. I don't think that'd be a big surprise either. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first half of this game was a lot better than the second. I did watch this whole one um, out of the curiosity of the fan reaction as well. A fan uh, friend who, who was in the stadium said there was around 30 banners supporting Jose Mourinho. Uh, the big one that got a lot of coverage said, Chihai difeso contro tutto e tutti, Roma non dimentica, grazie, Mr. Jose, which means uh, you defended us against everyone and everything. Rome does not forget. Thank you, Mr. Jose. Which is a- of, of how many of, of of those thirty banners? How many uh, were bought for uh, bought by Mourinho and uh, <laughs> given to fans? 
<laughs> what was what was it like 25 the over under is at 25 yeah, 24 and a half and i'll take the over yeah. with you there graham <laughs> that would be amazing if it was like they just had a crowd shot and it was Jose Mourinho holding up a banner like Jose is the best and then it's another crowd <laughs> shot it cuts back to a different part of the stadium with a different banner Jose's just sprinted to the other side to hold up a different <laughs> pro Jose banner i need that in my life that's what he should dedicate his free time to now that he's not managing there we go. Paid for by the Mourinho Super Pack. He's got a printing company for banners uh, <laughs> on board. Uh, Juventus with a 3-0 win at Lecce as well. They went top with that win because uh, the big boys were in Saudi Arabia and still are for the Italiana, Supercoppa Italiana, excuse me, the final taking place uh, on this very Monday as we record between the league winners Napoli and the cup winners Inter. Uh, Napoli with a 3-0 win over Fiorentina to get there. Inter with a 3-0 win over Lazio. Um, Matteo Bonetti on the CBS coverage saying it's the best Inter performance he's seen in a long time. Better than peak Barcelona, or as good as peak Barcelona. Um, so well done to the 20 wow. to 30 people in the stadium who saw that game. Uh, congratulations to them. They, saw, <laughs> they had a real treat. Very good. Yeah. Uh, last but not least, AFCON update. Plenty of interesting results here. Joe Lowry, a big statement win over the Ivory Coast for Nigeria. Yeah, this happened on Thursday as we were recording our last AFCON show, if I remember correctly. And we talked about this game being a huge one in Group A. And it, it turned out to be a statement win for Nigeria. They beat Ivory Coast 1-0. Again, this tournament is being held in the Ivory Coast, and you could see a ton of orange shirts in the crowd there, as as those folks absolutely should be out there supporting their home team. A really awesome atmosphere for this game that made watching it even more enjoyable. Nigeria now on four points in Group A and virtually guaranteed to go through. They're not officially through yet. The only team that is through is Cape Verde, which is absolutely incredible. I love this tournament. I cannot wait to talk about it more later on this week. Nigeria were the better team in this game. They switched from the 4-3-3 that they used in the first game in that in that 1-1 draw to a 5-4-1. So they responded to the firepower that the Ivory Coast have. Also, Taylor's hands, listener, still up in the air from the moment I said Kate Bird <laughs> threw to the round of 16. He is rocking back and forth in his chair, swiveling side to side. His hands are That's in like the Jason air. That's Jason Kelce. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Got the beard for it. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> the shirt was just removed, listener. Please go on, Joe. How do we not have this recorded? That's incredible. Anyway, Nigeria, I thought we're good in this game. The most interesting part for me about Nigeria, for all the questions that we've all had about this team, is like the fact that their defense held. In this match, they they play in this 5-4-1. They give Ivory Coast the vast, vast majority of the ball. I think Nigeria is somewhere in the 30% possession range, 30 to, to 39 in that in that sphere. Like, And they held out and got three points in this match. A huge result for them and a fun game overall in what has been an, a genuinely an awesome tournament. Taylor, would you like to put your arms back up in the air to talk about Cape Verde with their 3-0 win over Mozambique? It just makes me so happy because uh, they're such a small country. I know nothing about them. Then I read more about them. I got really into them. I liked all their players coming from all the different places. I love Bebe scoring a free kick rocket. Graham, I know you've got Incredible. some thoughts on that one. Uh, but I also enjoy that I did not have to edit our last show because I think, if you all recall, I was editing that one. And I predicted that it would be like a really weird, now that Ivory Coast have looked good and Nigeria have looked bad, I think my prediction was like, this is going to be something weird. It's going to be nil-nil or like an ugly result. And I feel like I didn't end up, I did not end up having to add any edits uh, because of the way that played out. Uh, but I am excited to see Nigeria getting a win, uh, likely getting through to the knockout round, not just because it makes Graham wrong, but because I think they could be an exciting team to have in the knockouts. <laughs> Senegal have looked exceptional. Cameroon have looked the opposite of that, but Cap Verde have looked the best of all of the teams we've talked about. Except not really, but kind of. <laughs> uh, Senegal with a 3-1 win over Cameroon. Graham, uh, Senegal's Elusise, their coach, treated in hospital for stomach pain after yeah. that game as well. 
Yeah, I, I saw that. I'm not entirely sure how um, serious that issue is, but I believe he is he's now out of hostel, so hopefully not too serious. Uh, in terms of the performance, this was a very accomplished victory by Senegal, who didn't really have to play their best football to see off a, a flawed Cameroon team. There was a bit of a late rally from Cameroon at 2-1, and they actually had a good opportunity to make it 2-2, but that wouldn't have been a reflection of the match that we saw. Just one shot on target from Cam- Cameroon. Senegal only had three themselves, and Cameroon did edge possession, but it never felt like Cameroon were able to to really impose themselves on the match. Ismail Sarr was probably the standout for Senegal on the right wing. Sadio Mane had a good game on the other side, and there was a goal for uh, Habib Diallo, who continues to start as the centre-forward over Nicholas Jackson. I don't know if the thinking there is that Jackson wants to get in behind a little bit more, whereas maybe Diallo is better in front of a low defensive uh, line. But Senegal have options, and you need that in tournament soccer. And with Morocco drawing, they and Ivory Coast losing, of course, of that three, the, the group of three front runners we talked about last week on the AFCON show, Senegal are looking the strongest of those three right now. And South Africa turning it on with a 4 0 win over Namibia. Yeah, it was really interested in seeing what kind of performance South Africa would produce against Namibia. Obviously, Namibia got that big result in their, in their first game. Uh, and South Africa lost to Mali, but there was enough in that performance to suggest that they might be able to put it all together and they were maybe better than they showed in that game. And that's what that's what happened here. That's what they did here. Namibia obviously don't have the quality of Mali, but nonetheless, there was a big improvement on, on the first game from South Africa. It was a lot quicker from them through their midfield into the attack. Percy Tau exercised some some demons from the first game by scoring a penalty and then that drew Namibia out a little bit more and South Africa found it easier to get in behind. Themba Zouane scored twice and was excellent. I, I like the box midfield they had on the go-in possession. So the TLDR is this is much more like what I expected from South Africa at this tournament and it wouldn't surprise me if they actually made a, a real impact on, on the knockout rounds. Plenty more AFCON to be coming on the TSS feed and also will be covering Asia Cup on the feed coming up shortly. Uh, Roberto Mancini, Saudi Arabia, by the way, in the Asian Cup, they've qualified for the knockout stages. They beat nine-man Kyrgyzstan 2-0 in their group stage game on Sunday. Two sendings off for Kyrgyzstan as well. It sounded pretty action-packed. Uh, so Saudi Arabia are through with Australia, Iran and Iraq as well. And we also had a shock defeat for Japan, 2-1 to Iraq in this contest. Of course, Graham... Well, before you interrupt, Ali Alhamadi of AC Wimbledon did not come off the bench for Iraq in that one. Oh, wasn't no. needed. Yeah. Yeah. That's Sad. why they won. Nothing. Well done, Graham. Well done. I'm going to go lay down now. So let's uh, let's finish this weekend review right here, shall we? Graham Ruthman, thank you very much uh, for all your contributions, apart from that last one. <laughs> thank you ryan billy just one final uh weekend update psv's 100 percent record is oh, no yeah. more they drew 1-1 away to utrecht so no. the winning run ended at 17 matches i wouldn't feel too bad for psv though because they still have a 10 point lead at the top of their division but yeah they it's do over. and watch out jordan henderson watching ix from the stands in ix's 4-1 win over walwick fun times in the area i'm sure that made the difference yeah, it did. He's uh, yeah, he's solving issues all over the world, left, right, and centre, including. He's growing ISIS. the game of football in the Netherlands, ha- having completed his mission in Saudi Arabia. Exactly. Where next? Where shall he go next? Uh, for the meantime, Joe Lowry, thank you very much indeed for your contributions. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. This is fun. And Taylor Rockwell, pleasure as always, my good man. The pleasure was mine, my good man. Get back to Heron Watch. Uh, listener, thank you very much for <laughs> joining us on this feed. We'll be back very shortly. But for now, bye. <laughs>